Hello, listeners. Welcome to Buried Voices in STEM. My name is M. Stacy, and I am one of the co-hosts for this podcast, along with Dr. Erica Tracy, Rora Dungo, and Charlize Williams. The aim of this podcast is to catalog the diverse journeys of individuals in STEM career paths and capture the perspectives of people with a variety of jobs and experience levels in science, technology, engineering, and math. This project is provided by the Neuroscience Institute Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Georgia State University in Atlanta, under the leadership of Dr. Erica Tracy. We give special thanks to our Center for the Advancement of Students and Alumni at Georgia State and the Maximizing Access to Research Careers Grant from the National Institutes of Health for funding activities related to this podcast. listeners, and welcome back to Varied Voices in STEM. Sit back and relax. Maybe grab a couple snacks while we take a dive into the brightest minds around. Today, we're here with Dr. Joseph Normandin, who is a senior lecturer at Georgia State, as well as the director of undergraduate studies of the Neuroscience Institute. In this interview, Dr. Normandin will discuss his personal struggles and how they led him to study neuroscience. He will also talk more about his role in the DEI committee, and express what changes and improvements he would like to see in the future. He will also touch on the challenges educators have faced during the COVID-19 pandemic. As long as I can remember, I was interested in science. As a little kid, I just loved learning about the world and how things worked. I remember being very little and telling people, when they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. That's what I said, I guess. One of my earliest memories would be some kind of like kid science magazines that my mom got me uh, soon after I was able to read. And these happened to focus on space. And so I learned a lot about cosmology and how planets and stars form and the different kinds of stars. And I started to explore those things more and more. So I was a huge like space science buff when I was a kid. We had a family vacation to to Florida to, to go to Disney World, but we also went to Cape Canaveral and, and NASA. And I got some NASA flashcards that had basically every NASA mission. So I sort of know a lot about early space exploration, different satellites and random facts. I also remember distinctly going to the Boston M- Museum of Science when I was little to an exhibit about the cooperation between the Soviet space program at the time Soviet, it was before the USSR had dissolved. So between Soviet and American space programs. And so they had a a bunch of different people from both space programs there. And I got to talk to all of them and I was just in heaven. And my mom will tell stories about that now, about how I was like this little adult and everyone was just like, who is this kid that, that knows about the random development of a Russian space shuttle, right? So yeah, I think early in my life, I was just really in, into science in general, uh, not just space. I mean, it really ran the, the gamut. In high school, I took an honors biology course, I think either my freshman or sophomore year, and the complexity of biology and understanding life processes really stuck with me. And I had an excellent in- instructor, Mr. King, who really just made all of that accessible, fun, and also gave us a lot of depth, which I appreciated. 
I went to a public school in, in Methuen, Massachusetts, and they had a, an excellent sort of STEM education program, although no one used that acronym back then. And in addition to taking the honors biology, I was able to take AP biology. There was also an AP psychology class. And that's really, really kind of shifted me into neuroscience. So with the AP psych course, there was this one chapter about the brain. And that just kept me captivated when we were on that chapter. And then everything that we learned after that, I always wanted to relate back to that chapter. So if we learned about various mental illnesses, how did that relate back to the brain? And the instructor didn't have the expertise in this area to really help us delve into the neurobiology of what we were studying in the psychology class, but also knew that the information was out there and sort of encouraged me to to learn about these things. So I think that was like the biggest shift for me. As a young person, I grew up in a, in a Catholic faith, but came to not share that faith with my family in, in, in high school. I was interested in, in philosophy, the philosophy of science. I wanted to know why people behave in certain ways. And for me personally, struggling early on in high school with my identity as a gay man and sort of accepting myself in a culture that was not as accepting as it perhaps is now to some degree, that was a big struggle for me. So I was interested in sort of why people are the way they are in addition to why I was the way I was. And that one chapter in that book really sort of spoke to me that that's where it all is, right? Is, is understanding brain function can lead to an understanding of people. And so, you know, the exploration of my own identity as a gay man, the curiosity I had about other people and why they were who they were, all kind of connected. And, and so I, I sort of looked for neuroscience um, programs uh, uh, for college. And if a school that I was looking at didn't have a neuroscience program, they at least had to have a core group of faculty doing a lot of neuroscience research because I knew that that would be a place where I could learn quite a bit. And so that was how I started applying to and choosing different colleges. You know, a lot of these things are connected. Identities around sexual orientation and gender tend to come at odds with major religious or theological philosophies. Certainly that is true in Catholicism still to this day. My family's sort of take on, on Catholicism, it was sort of more focused on a core Christian concept of following Jesus as an example. And so the behaviors reported in the New Testament and how early Christians behaved tended to inform my family's sort of worldview. And that was mainly centered around being kind to others, that sacrificing your needs for another person's needs is a virtue. And that was certainly exemplified in the way my mom moved through the world. Incredibly generous person, just wanted people around her to be successful and, and happy. Those kinds of things made sense to me. You know, that felt good and right. But some of the mysticism within Catholicism and certainly the political issues around the Catholic Church vis-a-vis uh, -vis gay people, these are things I could get behind. It seemed that the concept 
of being kind to others didn't sort of extend in some ways to the politics of the church. And so those conflicts were very difficult for me to resolve. And as I learned more about the world in general, I drifted away from that spirituality and sort of replaced that with a um, philosophy of just trying to maximize people's happiness in my life, regardless of a particular faith. And during that time in our household, certainly no one would sort of vilify a gay person, but the message that I received growing up is that there was something wrong with gay people, that uh, it might be a disease, something like a mental illness that was sort of reinforced by cultural norms and ideas at that time. And I didn't have anybody else in my life that I knew that was gay. And so I had no role model or representation of what that would be. And also up until that time, portrayals of gay and lesbian people in the media tended to be uh, fairly negative, uh, one of pity. It was also the height of the AIDS uh, pandemic where the association between gay men and disease was made stronger. And the stigma of, of AIDS was, was frightening to my generation of, of gay men. So in the context of all of that, it was a challenge for me to understand my identity. And in general, like sex wasn't something talked about in my family. So the whole subject, you know, was somewhat uncomfortable. But I had some idea that I was gay, of course. And so as I tried to understand this, my way of doing so was to try to understand the biology of sexuality. You know, this understanding of myself and that AP psych class came together. And so I started to explore sexuality from a nerdy point of view. And it it made me more comfortable to learn that there were different identities, that there may be some brain basis to sexual orientation. At that time, I needed that validation, if you will, that the natural systems of, of life on earth sort of supported my identity. And it seems, it makes sense to me that I turned to that. What is sad to me now, though, as an adult is, is just the real pain of all of that it makes it even hard to think about now because it wasn't like I was just exploring some idea. You know, I, I didn't like that I was gay. I thought my life would be horrible and I didn't know that I would ever have happiness. And so I was, I was pretty hopeless and pretty depressed. And this is when I'm like 14, 15, 16. So you're also just trying to understand your place in the world at that time that we all go through. And so I felt like very, very alone and very isolated. Unknown to me at that time, I have two half-brothers from my dad's first marriage, and they're both gay as well. And they're about 10 and 15 years older than me. The brother who's 15 or so years older than me came out even before I was sort of going through this, but it was not Uh, talked about in our family. I remember his boyfriend joined us for some family holiday. While that person was welcome, there was was no context to it. And so it wasn't until I was sort of exploring my own sexuality that I started to put the pieces together and realize that my brother was gay as well. So 
I didn't really have anyone to talk to about this. And as I started to put the pieces together and realized that my brother was gay, I couldn't even talk to him. I didn't really feel like that comfortable doing that. And, you know, our relationship was perhaps not like most siblings in that we were raised in, in different families, um, though we shared a father. So I really felt very alone. You know, my intellect has always sort of protected me. Being like a short, scrawny, kind of timid kid, not very outspoken, not very confident in general, uh, not into typical boy stuff like sports. It was always made me a target for bullying. And so I basically protected myself my whole life with my intellect. I knew that I might be made fun of for some quality about me and that wasn't sort of the best quality per society standards that I had in me. But there's this other thing, I'm really bright and that's going to take me far in the world. And as you might imagine, that was reinforced in my family, as I said about looking at college and science and, and whatnot. So, you know, that was like an armor for me. So it makes sense that that's what I turned to to understand my identity as, as a gay person. But it wasn't an incredibly painful process. And it makes me upset now to think that I didn't have the support that I could have had, that I, that I hope some young gay people enjoy now, where they may feel more comfortable talking about their sexuality more openly early on, because there's not as much taboo around it. But it took me a while to explore that, understand it. And I first came out to a few close friends lost a few close friends and other relationships were reinforced. And then I started to explore the wider world of, of being a gay person and started going to a youth group called the Boston Alliance of Gay and Lesbian Youth. It was instrumental in my life. It helped me meet other gay and lesbian youngsters and to form those relationships, to start dating, to experience some of the normal stuff that a teenager experiences, first relationships and breakups and exploring sex for the first time and, and, and fumbling your way through all of those things. And so this youth group just allowed me to be a more normal teenager, even though I had to drive about 40 minutes to, to feel that way. Through that whole time, I tried to let my knowledge about gender and sex that I had learned through my research at the library, I tried to let that help others as well. Because once I felt confident in myself, I knew that maybe others didn't have that same armor. And so I really made an effort to, to help other people. So I did come out in high school. I think I was 17, so probably my junior year. And there was what's called a Gay-Straight Alliance in Massachusetts uh, school club that sort of supports um, gay and lesbian and trans people through peer support with allies. At some point, I was the only member, but that also is important to me. You know, I very quickly went from feeling really scared to being very confident. And it was an interesting transformation at that time in, in high school for me. I just started started to feel more empowered that I could actually be the person that I wanted to be, that 
if there were things about me that were a challenge that maybe I should challenge them. So I'd never really been into sports, but I was athletic in a way. You know, I did gymnastics when I was a kid and I liked that kind of, you know, moving my body and, and doing those kinds of things. So I started to do cross country and track and tennis and, you know, I wasn't the best, but I enjoyed it. It was very fulfilling personally. My education was going well. You know, all of this together said that, like, there was nothing wrong with me. Both my understanding of the biology, the way I was moving through life and trying to be a good person and challenging myself in other ways, it felt like the sky was the limit. That's what gave me the confidence to go to this youth group to help out with the group that was in my school that really didn't have any openly gay members besides me and and maybe a, a few others at different times. But just the fact that these things existed was important, that there were adults who cared enough to made, make sure that these places existed so that I could thrive. Because without this, like, what, what was I going to do except be miserable? I mean, at that time, half of the suicides in Massachusetts were essentially gay and lesbian youth. So these things were life-saving. And I was depressed and I did contemplate suicide. So my life very well could have been saved by, by these adults in these programs. By the time I was ready to go to college, I felt like a normal teenager. I felt that spirit that perhaps you experience at the end of high school, that your whole future is out there. And really, you could do anything that you want. Now, I don't know if everybody feels that. I think in my personal experience, I had the privilege to feel that because, again, like I knew I was going to college. Money wasn't going to be easy, but I knew it was going to be able to happen. And I always knew I had my mom to fall back on. So I could explore different majors, different ideas if I wanted to but I was pretty set on neuroscience. Uh, and so for those of us who come from that place, seeing the world open up is, is pretty amazing. The trick is now, like, how do we make that experience universal? Because I don't think everybody gets to experience that. And a big part of this is that my generation and my family is the first to go to college. And so what my my mom and my uncle, with regard to my cousins, what they recognized is that a college education would open doors for us and give us more financial security than they had. And so from a very early age, we were basically told we were going to college, even though I don't think anybody else in the family knew what that would be like. And certainly that caused challenges for me later on in college because I had no one to tell me what it was like and how to navigate college. But there was always this idea that that college was, was the goal. I remember being on vacation once. My cousin and her father, my uncle, were visiting. We went into Boston for the day, and we were at Harvard just walking around in Cambridge. And then nearby is uh, MIT. And I told my cousin that, you know, I would go to MIT, she would go to Harvard, and we could have recess together which became like a family joke for a long time. She actually ended up going to Harvard, but, but I didn't go to MIT. And so I guess from an early age, 
just a love of education and learning was fostered, even though the end to that was a bit amorphous. Like what that would result in was a bit amorphous, but our family knew that that was an important goal for us. And then what I gravitated towards, and and in fact, my cousin as well, were the sciences. And she with mathematics, especially. I mean, she was reading advanced math books at a really young age. And and she's a biostatistician now, so it, it all makes sense. So our family just really fostered that that love of learning in, in both of us. So I'm thankful for that privilege because they had built up enough resources that we could do these things, that we didn't have to worry necessarily about being able to go to college. The money certainly wasn't infinite. That had to be a factor in, in decisions about how college would proceed, but there was sort of never a question about whether or not we could go to college. I recognize how important that privilege is more and more as I see students now struggling to pay for college and that affecting their grades. I mean, I certainly had to work, but I had a fallback. That was a big advantage for me. So going into college, the sky was the limit, but that that all came crashing down pretty quickly because I had taken these AP courses and done this and that. So I placed out of a lot of early courses. And on the face, that seems like a, like a good thing because I don't have to take like English. I don't have to take my first math, but you know, if you are missing some component to your education, but still able to pass those exams and get credit, you know, you're never getting that component of your education. And so what I found is that I had made it into college and done well, but I lacked a lot of study skills. I think I lacked a lot of foundational math skills as well and had always just sort of used critical thinking to to get through things because that was something that I was good at. But the lack of the actual skills and knowing how to study to have that discipline was incredibly detrimental to me in, in college. So my first semester, I was already taking legit neuroscience courses and physics and sort of fairly advanced courses that you might not take till your sophomore year. And I really couldn't hack it. The material was interesting. I was engaged, but I didn't know how much we'd need to know. The depth and the breadth, the amount of work required in college is nothing like I'd experienced. And so my grades were not reflecting my capability and potential. And so I got scared right away after that first semester and thought, maybe this isn't right for me. Maybe I shouldn't be a scientist. Now, at the time, with the gay youth group that I was going to, it was a time in Massachusetts where there was a lot of political activism around gay rights. So securing the right to marry, the right to discrimination-free employment. These were things that, that people around me were working towards. And I was part of that too. And that served as a major distraction in college, something that I'm incredibly proud of. And it's brought me immense personal fulfillment, but it directly takes away from your study time. And so I became a leader in this youth group and helped organize and run the youth group. At the same time, I went through a program that teaches 
gay lesbian people to do public speaking, simply than to tell their stories to others about what their experience was as like as a gay person, with the sole goal of just helping people understand that experience with no actual socio-political thread through that. There's no sort of goal here beyond, I'm just a person telling my story. So that took away a lot of energy and time from my studies, but I really wanted to do it because it was so personally fulfilling. And then I wasn't sure I could hack it as a STEM major, so I switched to political science, thinking that that might be a future for me. And I really actually loved that for the one semester I was a poli-sci major. The courses were super interesting. And I'm glad I did that because I learned about how the U.S. government works at all levels and still use that information today. But I was still drawn back to the science. And there was a symposium organized at Harvard that was around the biology of sexuality. And I hadn't thought about that for some time. But the people who I had read about who did that research that made me initially feel comfortable with myself, they were the people that were going to be there. And so I, you know, crossed the river to to Cambridge and went to this symposium. And in meeting those scientists, I realized that this really was my passion. And so I started to shift my life a little bit to focus more on my studies but I still didn't have those study skills. I had no one at home as a first-generation college student to talk to about how to study, how to navigate things. You know, I handled all the financial aid paperwork. I handled all the paperwork and all the decision-making. And that's a lot of pressure for a young person to navigate. And a lot of mistakes get made. And those things, again, take away from, from your time to actually just be studious. So I started to engage in some undergraduate research, which I knew would be important if I wanted to be a scientist in the future, but I still didn't know what that life would be like. I just kind of had this amorphous goal, I suppose. As I moved through college, I didn't resolve these issues around academic discipline and study skills very quickly. And so my grades just kept getting worse and worse. And at one point I was on academic probation and I got assigned like a special academic uh, advisor to help me navigate this. She talked with me about my life and saw so much potential in me and just said she didn't understand why the person in front of her couldn't translate into a strong student. And I just think, you know, I never quite figured out the game, so to speak, in addition to being distracted by other arguably important things. So towards the end of my education, even though my grades weren't spectacular, they did start to improve as I gained more focus and discipline and got rid of some of the distractions in my life. And I ran out of courses to take in neuroscience at the undergrad level. So I got permission to take graduate level courses and I did okay in those. Uh, You know, I, I actually perhaps did a little bit better. And the end of my college career wasn't as bad as sort of the beginning and in the middle, 
um, but it would become a barrier for me to to get into graduate school because my GPA was not was not stellar at all. And you know, during this time as well, I was struggling with my mental health, feeling depressed a lot. I think especially for first-generation college students, there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders. You know, your family looks at you to be the, the ones who finally succeed, right? That success is often directly correlated to how much money one is making in these types of situations. But that money was never my goal. I wanted to be intellectually stimulated. Again, that's a privilege, right? That I knew I had a family to fall back on if I didn't have economic resources. So I had the privilege of just doing whatever I wanted. But that also is a double-sided sword because I didn't have the focus that I necessarily really needed. And that just all of that together really made me feel really bad about myself. And it's something that I think about every semester teaching now because, you know, students will often earn a grade that that is not what they want, something that isn't even passing a course. You know, you're going to feel bad, right? You can't avoid that. But I don't want that to become part of a student's identity, that a bad grade means I'm a bad person. It just is, is really silly when you when you think about it. But it's something that, you know, our families might reinforce unintentionally. And it takes someone to help you navigate those feelings and that thought process. And I certainly didn't have that. So my undergrad graduate experience was definitely a challenge and really informs a lot of the way I approach my teaching now, which reinforces time management, study skills, and using your inherent strengths to meet challenges in the course. And lastly, to reach out to others for help, because that's what changed things for me. Reaching out to counseling services to deal with my mental health issues around being depressed and how this was all related. Reaching out to that special advising counselor to help me navigate my courses a bit better. Um, And, you know, reaching out to professors to join their lab to do research to give myself another avenue to meet my goals. And so all along the way, there were particular people that that took a chance on me and helped grow my future. But I had to initially have that strength to reach out, which is not easy when you feel like you are failing at a lot in life. So I try to, as much as I can, be that person for other students now so that their experience might be a little bit easier. I remember this one particular instance in which I was taking this graduate level course and it was sort of a survey of systems neuroscience. The first exam was just two questions and you just had to write an essay answering these two questions that were incredibly broad. Now I had never had anything like this before. And now I know what that requires is to synthesize lots of information, to think critically, to be able to explain something complex in as simplistic terms as possible to get your, your point across to be thoughtful and to include as much detail as possible. But I had never encountered a question like that before. So, and it was a take home uh, exam. So I could use other resources because what we were, this professor was trying to do is help us develop those skills to synthesize knowledge. So 
I sat down at my computer to do this and felt completely helpless. Like there was no way I had had it in me to do this. So I went to the professor, another example of reaching out for help. And I said, I don't think I can do this. His name is uh, Howard Eichenbaum, by the way. He's a memory uh, neuroscientist. And he said, all right, well, let's look at this first question. Tell me a little bit about what you know. So I started to describe to him my understanding of the phenomenon. I don't remember what it was. And he said, that's a great start. Now, you can turn that into writing and just build on that. Use the resources around you to just keep building that and just make sure it's organized in a way that helps fully answer the question and you're good to go. And he just sort of said to me, like, yeah, like, you're good. You know what you're doing. You can do this. You've got the skills. It's just about doing the work. And I left there actually feeling like I could approach this. Now that he had given me just a framework to build my answer around, I was fine. And I just don't think I had any experience to that point allowed me to have created that framework. But once he did that, I knew I could do it. You know, I didn't ace the exam, but I think I got a B, which, you know, is not bad for an undergraduate in a graduate level course. And I certainly, you know, learned a lot in that course. It changed the way I approached my studies after that. It gave me a lot of confidence, for sure. Yeah, so I actually was a graduate student at GSU. So the first time I would have been to GSU would have been my interview for graduate school. So this would have been in 2004. And I was picked up at the airport by Dr. Michael Black, who was a graduate student here at the time, now faculty at the Neuroscience Institute. And on the way to my hotel, we ran out of gas. We pushed his car just a little bit down the street to get to a gas station. And I just thought it was the funniest thing. But grad student life can be pretty busy sometimes. <laughs> so I can understand running out of gas. And I just thought it connected Dr. Black, now Dr. Michael and I, together from that moment. And we still laugh about it and like to tell people about that. And so I would have come to GSU in, in 2004 for my interview. Dr. Ann Murphy, also faculty here, was my host and eventual uh, PhD advisor. It looked a lot like where I had gone for undergrad, which was another urban university, uh, Boston University in, in Boston, Massachusetts. So I was used to buildings being tightly packed together, modifications needing to be made over time that, that appear uh, strange, but allow for access to different parts of the campus easily tunnels and bridges and things like that sort of abound in urban campuses. And, and we have some of those strange bridges and connections here. So I was used to an urban campus, which is perhaps not as beautiful as others that get to be in a wooded area. So certainly not the prettiest campus, and I was pretty used to that already. Many of the labs at the time, one of the buildings has been torn down now called Kell Hall, and Kell Hall was one of the oldest buildings at GSU and was formerly a, a parking garage. And it was converted into classrooms quite a long time ago and then into labs. 
I believe at one point there was a bowling alley and maybe even a swimming pool in Kell Hall early on. I forget. There, there's a whole there's a whole history there. But going up and down parking garage ramps to get to the different labs for my interview is definitely interesting and quirky. And you know, there are a lot of quirky things like that about, about campus because of the way that it's grown. I did work for a few years as a research technician in a lab between undergrad and grad school, I knew I would need some further research experience to help bolster my application. And once I matriculated into graduate school, which was at TRGSU in the biology department before the Neuroscience Institute existed, I did feel very confident. I was also a little bit older than many of my classmates. And so there was, you know, quite a few sort of eye-rolling moments where it felt like I had perhaps some level of maturity that some of my classmates lacked. Like, I remember students complating about how hard it was. <laughs> just like, scratch. You're trying to get a PhD in neuroscience and you're complaining how hard it is. But maybe they needed someone to help provide some of that framework that that professor had done for me. So we all sort of muddled through together, worked on things together to, to bolster each other. And it was a great experience. And I certainly felt confident and and, and did help others. And, and they helped me as we made our way through graduate school. You might think changes I've made as an undergraduate director to a program or the changes I've led to a program, you know, adding a peer mentor program, an internship program, a new major orientation, like social media stuff. Like these, these are accomplishments. They're things that that really change things for students. And, and I'm proud of that. But I guess the thing that I'm most proud about is that I, I make a lot of effort and I try to create a space for students to enjoy their education in my classroom. You know, I'm a human being, so I'm not perfect. So not every interaction I have with students is, is positive. We both come to that dynamic with our own with our own baggage, and sometimes that's tough to navigate. I'm always willing to try, though, of course. But, you know, at the end of this semester, which was particularly challenging for me personally, I had a student tell me that she faced a lot of challenges in her own life, things that were completely out of her control. She also works a lot but still manages to somehow be in a lab and and do well there. And she told me like the only thing that got her through the semester was my class, that it was almost like a refuge for her, that it was a place where, you know, she felt like she could be curious and, and learn and enjoy it. And it was really touching to me that I could create that space for someone. And it's not the first time I've heard that. I've heard the exact opposite too. Again, I'm not I'm not perfect. And I don't think every time I interact with students is the best. I have a lot to learn. But I do work hard to try to create that that space and that framework that, you know, Howard Eichenbaum had given to me in answering that question. Try to repeatedly do that in my classes to give students the skills that they need and to work really hard for them, to know that someone cares about them uh, and, you know, that they can work hard and care about themselves and each other. 
that that's my biggest accomplishment is to just try to do that every class and muddle through when, when it's difficult. Yeah, I work hard and it's nice to be appreciated. And that's a phrase that I repeat an email. It's tough sometimes to accept praise. Yeah, I mean, there's just a part of me still that just feels like an imposter, that still feels like if people only only knew my own doubts that they wouldn't think so highly of me. Or, you know, when I do have an interaction that goes south with a student, I always beat myself up about it because I should have been my best self in that moment. But so it's tough to... I have a lot of high standards for myself. It's tough to tough to forgive. I guess when intellect is your armor, sometimes that makes it tough to feel things. I and mean, I've tried to break that that down over the years to try to connect with people on an, an emotional level as well to make sure that that sense of caring and connection is there beyond just the intellectualism. It was a quick shift. In spring 2020, we did sort of have, I think, a week or two break before we shifted fully online that was allowing instructors to sort of pivot. Now, I'm pretty technically savvy. I learned how to do public speaking a long time ago. So these those were not challenges for me. What was a challenge for me is that in the midst of navigating this pandemic in my own personal life, the practical issues, the emotional issues, having my one remaining elderly parent up in the Northeast alone, that was a pretty big challenge for me. And then navigating university and state policy around these issues and trying to create the best scenario for students, that's what was tough. All of that together at the same time. The actual switching to an online class was not so tough. I knew how to make a good lecture video and my boyfriend has a great camera and knows how to edit videos because that's his job. So, you know, he initially did some video editing for me and then taught me how to do it and then I was fine. So that shift for me, for the teaching was not challenging. And I knew that having live sessions would allow me to still do some of the things I would normally do in the classroom. So I always kept that. I just tried to reinforce the same class culture online and it's worked fairly well. And then as we sort of continued to be online, things did get challenging because there was difficulty in really engaging students because I could do a lot. But if the students didn't want to sort of meet me halfway, then it just wasn't going to work. What I became most concerned about is students just feeling like they could get through my courses by watching the videos and that's it. But it's not because like that open-ended question that I had to face in my undergraduate career, students in my classes have something like that, perhaps not as difficult as that two-question exam, open book, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly my expectations of students are quite high in what I want them to do and achieve. I don't know if everybody's ready for that. And as much as I try to engage, I feel like I'm reaching out a lot, but not many people are reaching back. 
And that's that's been tough over the pandemic as it's proceeded. And it's made me feel more disconnected from students myself because I feel like I'm making a lot of effort and not getting much back towards me. And um and it's made me a bit disenchanted and 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 really kind of bummed out at times and really tired. I've not had like a break since the pandemic began as far as like not having to think about how it all impacts the program and teaching and things like that. When this all began, I didn't want students' experience in college to be completely derailed. So if we did a particular thing like new student, new neuromajor orientation, well, we're going to find a way to do that. If I do these lessons, these active lessons in my class, well, we're going to find a way to do that. I I didn't want students to not be cared for because it would have been very easy to just say, well, the pandemic made us cancel that. So I tried really hard to lead our faculty in a way that preserved the integrity of the student experience in our program. And I think we were pretty successful at that, but it was really hard when I felt like I was making a lot of effort and not getting much back. And like I said, that's made me a bit disenchanted lately. There is still, I think, some anxiety around being in person that plays into this, but it's almost like we all have to relearn to interact with each other. That's certainly something I'm experiencing in my personal life, where it's strange, but I'll watch a TV show and no one's wearing a mask because it's like in 1990, and I'm just like freaked out that no one's wearing a mask. And then seeing friends for the first time in a long time and in person and redeveloping those relationships, it just feels strange. There's anxiety there. And I think that's also happening in the classroom. I think uh, we all feel a bit tentative about developing relationships. Are they just going to be cut off again? And we're all just going to isolate. Maybe we're all used to being isolated. So what I'd like to say is that the in-person courses have sort of rekindled this, this engagement, but it's not. I think there's almost like students who have forgotten how to do this or maybe have never experienced it in college yet because their college experience has been online courses. So I'm trying to be patient with students and, and draw students out to, to engage. And I think I've seen that happen with some students and then in others, it's, it's not quite happened yet. And another part to this too, is that the, the effects of the pandemic in our lives are so reverberating. There's this sense that our economy is fairly strong in that unemployment rates are really low, but We also have these supply chain issues and maybe people have taken on new kinds of jobs that are not as flexible vis-a-vis school, traditional in-person courses. So there's this sort of ecosystem where we're having to navigate essentially a new world, a new economy, a new way of engaging in in, in in-person and online courses, perhaps at the same time. And I don't think any of us have really figured out how to how to get everything to work quite right. Some of the lessons that we take from 
our online courses around being as flexible as possible can translate into our in-person courses to help with some of these, these issues as many students now have very different responsibilities vis-a-vis um, -vis work and, and other family situations. So it's, it's definitely a continuing challenge to be an educator at this time. But again, the goal has always been in our department to just try to make the student experiences as good as possible. We're people too. So when we have like a goal and a desire to connect and, and all we want to do is help people, but then we don't get that back. It's just like any other person in any other part of life. It feels shitty, but it's something that I've learned to understand a bit better with my years of teaching experience that you, you try to not take things personally. You don't know what's going on in another person's life as to why they can't meet you halfway, so to speak. I just try to be aware that there's so many different experiences out there and to be sensitive to that as much as I can, while at the same time, you know, maintaining the program and class standards as, as best we as best we can with being flexible. I think if we think most broadly about the diversity in neuroscience in general, what we know is that there are some underrepresented communities in neuroscience. So, uh, you know, people of African descent, African-Americans, um, you know, are a huge minority within neuroscience. Women are not necessarily a minority within neuroscience, but if you look at how women proceed through their careers in neuroscience, there's a ton of women in the beginning and then not so much at the senior level, so to speak, of the different traditional positions within, within academia. So there's a lot of work around these areas. Something that I'm particularly sensitive to is like how are, you know, LGBT people sort of progressing in STEM fields. And really, there's no data about this. There's never been a real look at how different sexual orientations and gender identity are represented within the STEM fields, whether or not uh, LGBT people face um, barriers uh, in progression of their careers, issues with opportunity in the beginning. So that's something that's definitely sorely needed. When I look at GSU's student body, and you know, which is such a, a wonderful thing, we've just got so many different kinds of students from different places in the world, from different parts of the country, from different walks of life, different races, sexual orientations, gender identities. It's really just kind of beautiful in that sense that it's a mosaic of humanity that's that's really sort of well represented. But because of historical issues around racism and around heterosexism and sexism in general, we have these disparities in neuroscience at large. And it's reflected to some degree if you look at the faculty in neuroscience, which has a sort of broad spectrum if we look at, at sex, lots of men and women. We have some you know, LGBT representation as well, but not much racial diversity. And so that is something I think that matches what we see in neuroscience in general. And though I don't know the data beyond neuroscience and the other STEM 
fields, I'd imagine we see something quite similar in, in biology, certainly, if not other STEM fields. So what I like to think about is that we have this wonderfully diverse student body that we're training to be this next generation of neuroscientists or doctors out there in the world. And it could really just change neuroscience overall. And I think this is important on a personal level that you want people from different walks of life have equitable access to education, to opportunities for growth and the careers that they want to pursue based on their talents. But it also is important because when you have a bunch of different people with different experiences, this is good for science. It means that you can ask lots of interesting questions that one person may ask because of their life experience and another person never would have asked. And so to me, working on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about making sure people at the Neuroscience Institute have opportunity for success, that we try to eliminate barriers to that success, and that all of this should create a more complete academic world with a diversity of questions being asked for study. So it's really exciting. Now, all of this grew out of what we experienced around the beginning of the pandemic in the summer of 2020 around the renewed focus of violence against people of color in the U.S., And that was not easy for me personally to experience, to watch on TV. And of course, I'm aware of the historical issues around race in the U.S. And violence against people of color is not like a new thing, but it really just came to the forefront more than any time, perhaps in my life, with the exception of the Rodney King trial also being another point at which maybe this country could have sort of faced some of these historical issues that appear to me to to be there. If it was difficult for me as a white man, I don't know what it was like for half of my students who are people of color. And it breaks my heart to think about what their experience was probably like while you're just trying to get an education. So I'm glad that these renewed efforts around thinking about these issues and what we mean by inclusivity and equity. I'm glad that these things are being talked about, even though it came from a very dark place. But we also have this danger of of this exercise being performative in that it's lip service to communities that have been marginalized forever and nothing changes or nothing actually concrete happens. And then there's also the danger that core issues are are ignored. So my understanding of the history of the United States and the literature and the social sciences would indicate that there is institutionalized racism within the U.S. 
And so my hope is that groups like the Neuroscience Institute DEI committee examine their own policies and processes to understand what they can do to eliminate any possible barriers for underrepresented communities. What's challenging for me personally being on this committee is that I am tired and the work that we need to do is significant, important, but needs a lot of effort. And so I've tried on the committee to focus on things that initially seemed like could have a pretty good impact, but easier to implement sort of aligning already with stuff. The power of that approach, of course, is that things get done faster because you were already ready to do them and they could have a big impact. But the danger of this is that you enter into that realm of lip service, that we have this committee that we're saying we're going to try to examine, you know, greater issues, but we run out of energy to do that and don't take a hard look at things. So That's something that I'm trying to be sensitive to as we go into this next phase of this this committee. What we've been able to accomplish is pretty significant, I think. So I actually think what we're doing right now is probably going to have the biggest impact on the Institute. People talking about their own experiences and around their identity and their just life experience, just hearing other people talk about that is a power is powerful. Uh, just understanding other people is powerful. That's something that I learned a long time ago in learning how to do public speaking around issues of sexuality and gender, to just tell my own story. When I learned about it back then from, from a group called Speak Out in, in Boston, again, it wasn't with any purpose beyond just telling a story to help people understand you. And then they do with that whatever they want, you know, once they really listen to you. But people have got to talk and people have to listen in order for any of that to happen. So I I think this could have a really big impact, which is really exciting to me. The other thing that we're working on is that you have this great diverse student body, but what if students don't sort of see themselves at the end? We can't, with a flip of a switch, increase the diversity, the faculty of the Neuroscience Institute, though that's something that I think is important to do. But we already have this wonderfully diverse pool of students, many of whom are graduating and going on to medical school or graduate school or other professional schools uh, or other graduate programs. So we're going into the workforce with jobs that they've gained through internships, right? So there's this resource there of a whole diversity of people that our freshmen might be able to connect with and see themselves at the end and see themselves moving forward since we can't provide that as faculty. And so we created this peer mentor program to just connect students together. And I think that's going to have a really great impact on students seeing themselves in their peers and knowing that there's a bright future for them. It's that same kind of thing that I mentioned where when I finished high school, I had quote unquote dealt with issues around my identity as a gay man. I felt confident. I felt strong. 
And I had the privilege of looking out at the world and thinking I could do anything. And I want our students to feel that way as well. But if they can't see necessarily examples of people like them making it, then I don't know if you can see the world as being open to you, especially given what we know about underrepresented communities and and neuroscience and the lack of representation. It implies that there's perhaps some kind of problem. And so to do a little bit to try to impact that feels very good. And I hope that our students get that experience that that I felt at the end of high school. And then we have to start thinking about the next generation of students who might come to GSU. Growing up, I knew vaguely that I wanted to be a scientist. I mentioned I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Then I learned how much math that entails, and I didn't want to be an astrophysicist anymore. But do students out in high schools now and middle schools sort of see that science could be in their future. I think in general, the idea of being a scientist as a profession is quite mysterious to people. A doctor, a lawyer, that makes sense. But we don't know many scientists in our lives. And I worry with the underrepresentation with particular groups in neuroscience that there's many people who will never realize that their future could include neuroscience. There's no models of that for them within their communities. So why not have our diverse student body go out into the world in Atlanta and outside of Atlanta and just be examples of engaging in science? And I'm hoping that as we get that going in the next couple of years, that we could, you know, really, again, sort of change the, the faces of, of, of neuroscience in general. But it's a long process, and and this can't happen without also examining the barriers that might be in place unintentionally, even, that are just out of a, a history of myopia around these issues. So that has to happen at the same time. I'm hoping to get a lot more student engagement. The students on the committee have been really great in pushing us forward with ideas, and they've had a lot of energy And I think that that experience I had way back when helping to run that youth group and doing the public speaking, you know, that translated into marketable skills in my future. You know, uh, I was not afraid to record videos of myself for online teaching, as an example. I hope that that kind of stuff translates for those students as well that are on the committee doing this work. And I think we need to expand that opportunity to just whoever wants to do it, really. today. Thanks for listening. This has been Varied Voices in STEM. I'm Dr. Erica Tracy. I'm Charlize Williams. My name is Rora Dongo. And I'm M. Stacy. Remember, stay safe, stay curious, and share your stories.